0: Ready? Yep. Let's go. Healthy, healthy rainbow. Beautiful fish.
1: <laughs> you dropped him,
0: dude.
1: <laughs> On a squalid baby.
0: Oh, baby. Bow task. Right there. I got it, I
1: got it too. Just oh, barely puts in the net. Oh, my God. Uh,
0: Sick, sick, sick. Oh. But first a word for our partners.
1: Alaska Rodco. Alaskan handmade rods.
0: National Wild Turkey Federation South Sound Strutters, your conservation organization for Washington State Turkey populations and habitats.
1: Heather's Choice. Healthy, flavorful, dehydrated meals for the backcountry. Use our discount code The Young Guides15 to save at checkout.
0: Shell Art Studio, original Alaskan-focused art. Slay Jays, it ain't all about the catching. Welcome back to another episode of the Young Guides Podcast. I'm Keaton,
1: and I'm Kyle. And on today's episode, we have on Lowell Gilliland. Lowell is a uh, you know he's a business owner up here in Alaska. Uh, I've met him at a couple of the events um, that I've attended um, the last couple months, and um, he. Owns and operates Wrangle Gear. Um, Wrangle Gear, you know, makes uh, backpacks and accessories for you know the Alaska backcountry hunter. And um, you know, we like talking to small businesses like like Wrangle, and you know, just kind of learn more about them, learn about you know why they started, kind of what the mission is, um, and then you know, it's it's Alaska business, and that's super cool because you know there's not a lot of people up here you got to ship things to Alaska that brings on a whole new set of challenges so it's cool to get to learn about a small business and about a startup and then i um, talking to Lowell at the various events he's a super cool guy he's got a lot of great stories so you want to know more about his background so with that welcome to the podcast Lowell
2: thank you very much appreciate you having me on
0: absolutely So I'd love to start the podcast and kind of just get to know about you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? Um, How'd you get into uh, these, you know, this business endeavor that you got into and how'd you find yourself up there?
2: Oh, well, uh, great question. I guess a little bit of background. I moved to Alaska or I should say I was moved to Alaska uh, prior to me having a say in the matter uh, when I was about Nihido Grasshopper. And, uh, really Alaska is my home. It's really what I remember most. And I got into fishing actually at a very early age, like three years old. Uh, I started going out, uh, fishing on some of the rivers in Washington state, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, came up to Alaska and just continued particularly in the fishing. Uh, I got into fly fishing and then, uh, spent a lot of time trapping uh, really all through, um, school, uh, high school, even in college, uh, trapped extensively throughout Alaska. I didn't really get into the hunting, uh, until probably like midway through high school. Uh, but when I did, uh, I had some good mentors, uh, that I met rather by accident, uh, that really took me underneath their wing and, uh, taught me a lot about animals, um, hunting Alaska. How to not screw up terribly uh, out in the backcountry, and then also let me learn on my own. Um, so that's kind of a, a brief synopsis of uh, yeah my my background in the field. Uh, I did get into guiding a little bit. Uh, I went ahead and got my guide's license, captain's license, and I'd always had ideas for different outdoor equipment items that I thought would be good, uh, but I'd never really acted on it. I'd done a little bit of hand sewing, uh, gear repair, just things that had broken of mine. And that turned into having friends say, hey, you can sew, I'd like you to fix this, I'd like you to fix that. And that turned into, why don't you just make a brand new piece of gear for me? And I still remember uh, one of the first projects I did um, uh, just kind of start to finish patterned, um, from, from pattern prototype to finished product was a backpacking quilt. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, a backpacking quilt, but it's basically a sleeping bag that is unzipped. It folds uh, or drapes over the top of a sleeping pad and has some elastic uh, bands that attach it to the sleeping pad. So you don't have the cold draft on the edges. And they were becoming a pretty popular here, um, I don't know, like six or so years ago, six, seven years ago. Uh, I had a friend who had ordered a bunch of equipment or supplies to make a backpacking quilt. And his mother-in-law was very much into quilting. And so he asked her, hey, can you help me sew this backpacking quilt? And he's a big-time hunter. And so when he showed up with all of this material to make this backpacking quilt, his mother-in-law took one look at it and said, that is not a quilt. Find somebody else to sew it for you. And he called me and I took one look at it and said, I have in my mind, I'm thinking, I have no idea how I'm going to sew this. And I said, sure, absolutely. I can make that for you. And that, uh, resulted in many hours of frustration, but I got her done. And, um, from there I branched out into more of the backpacks and duffel bags, um, and that's where I am today, took it from custom gear to production. Uh, now I'm trying to get more into the business management side of it and not the sitting behind a sewing machine every day. Uh, so we can grow the business into a company that can provide gear for more individuals. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. So when you first started, you know, <clears throat> working on gear, was it like a necessity thing? Like, oh man, I, I am on this hunt. I was, you know, maybe you were with clients. And my gear broke and I got to figure out a way to fix it. Is that how you kind of got started working on gear? Oh, you know, that's a great question. Actually, I think uh, before that, even
2: uh, when I was trapping, I was not making any money trapping. I mean, you'd sell your furs at the end of the year and you'd make a few hundred bucks. And most of it go back and uh, paying for lures and traps and snow shoes and whatnot for the next year. And so a piece of gear, you know, got a hole in it or tore, I'd, you know, be stitching it back together. And it really came from necessity just not being able to afford to buy uh, or replace new gear. And that turned into just a skill that I've used all the time. And yes, uh, in the field, having gear fail on me, I always brought a sewing kit. Uh, I do remember one specific time I was on a horseback hunt, had a backpack get ripped, uh, like the main compartment of it, basically got ripped from top to bottom and ended up stitching it all back together. Uh, It was on the back of a horse, just uh, throwing on like a soft pannier. And the horse thing caught it on a... A broken off branch on a tree and just being a horse kept on pulling on it and it ripped and spilled all the contents down on the ground I was able to repair it and continued on I was like oh just give me about half an hour here I'll fix her up and situations like that you just run into uh, when you're out in the field
0: yeah um, I'm going to kind of backtrack real quick uh, you mentioned that you build gear for uh, individuals does that mean that you're building like Uh, backpacks and stuff to fit the individual person, or are you building like a a bulk backpack and then kind of adjusting to that person? Or if neither, how what is uh, what do you mean by like the individual statement?
2: Oh, well, uh, started off, Wrangle, I was making custom gear for people, they come with an idea, they want a I don't know, a backpack built this certain way with a pocket in this specific spot, a zipper in that specific spot. And I would pattern it and and make it. I realized rather quickly that that was not something that I was going, it wasn't sustainable and it definitely wasn't scalable. Yeah. So I consolidated all of the ideas that I thought were, that had a broad market appeal Mm -hmm. and added a few of my own touches to it. And then created a product or a pattern that could be produced by somebody else other than me. Um, that's what I meant by that.
1: Okay, cool. So what did that look like in the start? Were you, you know, like in a garage or an office or something when you first started doing that? Uh, kitchen table.
2: <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yep. Kitchen table. I've had some interesting, um, shop spaces, uh, over the years. Yeah, but it all started at the kitchen table. And really, uh, even before that, I can say it started on a roof. Um, some of these ideas I'd had for gear, uh, because in my mind was always uh geared towards improvement of whatever I was um whatever I was into at the moment. So if it was a specific project. Like at that point in time, I was pressure washing a roof. Uh, I had a business uh, in the summertime. I would go clean off moss off people's roofs, with a pressure washer. And I bought uh, a tent. I want to say it was, well, it was a name brand tent uh, at the time I'd spent, gosh, three, 400 bucks on it. And the first time I'd taken it out, I'd gotten soaked with a sideways rain because the rain fly didn't uh, go down far enough next to the ground. Uh, so I was up there working, and it's kind of mind numbing work, you know, you just pressure washing moss off of roofs and I'm thinking, hmm, how can I make a better tent? And I kind of thought it all through and wrote down, uh, made some drawings. And it was one of the first things that I tried to produce with wrangle. And that was probably 12 years or later. You know, it was like a decade later. Um, uh, so
0: <clears throat>
2: other gear that I'd used over the years, just thought, hmm, how can I improve upon that? And it's just, I can't turn that part of my mind off. It's just the way it works.
1: Gotcha.
0: so were you gonna say something Keaton no I was gonna say something but I was like yeah go ahead Kyle okay <clears throat> so <clears throat>
1: what does that kind of turn into now from you know kitchen table well, ideas on roofs to a kitchen table kind of tell us the progression then from from working you know The ideas, the custom stuff, and then, yeah, tell us that whole, that whole um, journey.
2: Well, you know, I'd had these ideas for outdoor gear for a long time. I mean, I, I've fished, I trapped, I hunted, I guided uh, both hunting, fishing, and had used a lot of gear and had found some really great gear, some gear that I thought left something to be desired and definitely something to be approved upon or room for improvement, I should say. And as time went on, without acting on those ideas, I was seeing the ideas that I had maybe four years prior, five years prior, starting to be incorporated into gear that was becoming mainstream and even winning awards, uh, like backpacker gear of the year award type stuff. And I thought to myself, well, if I don't act now, I am going to Probably with a lot of regret, like not even trying. So i I started with nothing i I went and bought a hobby um, foff sewing machine, uh, single needle straight stitch, drop feed, nothing to it. I mean, it's it was a very very simple machine, and I started uh, sewing up some roll top dry bags, um, a couple duffel bags. One of the earlier projects that I think I alluded to earlier was a tent. Uh, I hired somebody to help me with that. I didn't have the sewing skills at the time necessary to pattern such a, a shapely three dimensional object. And even though I provided very specific dimensions and drawings of what I wanted it to look like, it turned out very different from what I had intended it to be. And that's when I realized I needed to increase my sewing skills so I could do the prototyping and patterning. And that led to a lot of frustration. I don't think I was a very pleasant person when I first started sewing. Uh, <laughs> sitting in front of a sewing machine was was not uh, natural for me. I really wanted to be out in the field, but it was um, a goal that I had that I was willing to put forth that uh, effort and go through that uncomfortable stage in developing a skill to be able to create my own gear, my own patterns. And then that grew into the custom, um, projects that I was taking on. And sometimes it was just repair, you know, replacing a zipper fixing a hole, et cetera. And then I got a better sewing machine. It was, uh, I, I actually traded a couple backpacks, uh, for sewn backpacks for a sewing machine. Uh, it was again, a, a friend of a friend knew somebody that had a sewing machine that they weren't using and it was a uh, pretty nice nice German-made machine. Uh, I put it to use right away, prototyped a backpack up out of just some cheap canvas, and then made a couple alterations to the pattern. Uh, Customer liked it. And then I went and found some really good fabric, went through the whole, what type of material should I be using? What is the best on the market? I didn't want to create uh, products that were just noise in an already very noisy market. I wanted to create something that was different and one of the ways I could do that was by making things higher quality Uh, and using the best materials I could find was the quickest way to do that. So from the uh, initial two backpacks that I traded for the new sewing machine, the upgraded sewing machine, I took that design and tweaked it a little bit more. I think I made two or three more backpacks uh, for customers but changing and improving the design a little bit. Uh, my prototyping skills were obviously getting better. Uh, they were pretty good, but taking a custom bag and just giving it a just a better look, a, a less blocky look, a more streamlined um, patterning. It took practice, particularly with the materials that I was using. Uh, we make most of our products out of a laminate fabric. It's four layers. You have an outer fabric, you have a ripstop grid, a waterproof membrane, and then a white, uh, backing. It's a woven liner. And because of that, it's, uh, very, very dimensionally stable. It doesn't have any stretch along the bias and it made it pretty difficult to. sew. I think mean, that was a, a hurdle that I had to overcome fairly early on was working with these high-performance materials it is not easy. Uh, so increasing my sewing skills to the point that I could produce an even better product. And from there, I sought out some more help. Uh, I partnered with a, a local sewing company. They helped me digitize the pattern that I had created for the Revelation 7800 backpack, which was the culmination of all these different uh, custom backpacks that I had been making and turning it into a producible product that I could sell off the shelf without alteration to a broad array of customers. Um, in the meantime uh, I've had shops in uh, the back room of old restaurants I've had them in the basements of nonprofits. Uh, it was a very much a bootstrapping uh, type of an operation I uh, had them at a fairgrounds for a while um, yeah really all over uh, just making things work at this point in time I have been able to Grow a manufacturing network uh, mostly within Alaska, trying to connect skilled um, sewers with my product, so they can go ahead and produce the product. I can bring them the parts and pieces and the materials, uh, all cut out. Then go ahead and sew um, the, you know, the backpack, the bag, the accessories, etc., and then I can uh, sell them to customers. So really, growing that network within Alaska is probably, probably the biggest challenge as of late. And there's a lot of great people out there, uh, particularly in the non-traditional employment, uh, with you know, working at home. Uh, I think that became really popular during COVID. Uh, I was trying to take products from the custom side of things to the production side of things right when COVID happened. And I really had two, uh, I'm not going to call them false launches, but I w- was ready to go. I had a manufacturer all lined out um, and they were going to go ahead and start sewing products for me. And then they got shut down. Uh, what was going on is during COVID, like one person in a cut and sew house would get sick and then they quarantine the whole place and shut it all down. Oh. And that was very, very difficult. Uh, so there was a period of time I was like, Oh, maybe this just, isn't going to happen. Like maybe wrangle is, a good idea, but now is not the right time. Well, I stuck, stuck with it. Uh, not giving up is probably the biggest thing. You, if you Google like why is it number one reason why businesses fail? You'll see things like uh, the lack of finances or bad business partners, etc. but they don't really mention giving up. And there's been many times I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do to solve this problem. I have to think about it for a few days, sometimes a few weeks, uh, but not giving up, keeping that, you know, idea of, well, it's all mental. I uh, just got to be a little more creative.
0: Yeah, That's really well said. Um, I had a question about, so like you're, you're sewing like a canvas material, right. Or like, you know, something kind of hardier, what kind of sewing machine does that take to do like an industrial level of, of sewing?
2: Well, there's a lot of different uh, industrial sewing machines out there. A lot of them are pretty specialized. Uh, If you go to like a large cut and sew house, they'll have a specific machine set up for doing a specific seam on a specific product. Oh, crazy. Uh, Yeah, it, it is very, very specialized. And you're able to do a lot more volume a lot quicker when you're set up that way. But you're also looking at you know, a lot um, larger minimum order quantities. You're looking at 500 to 1,000 uh, units when you start dealing with stuff like that. Uh, I use um, a Unison feed uh, FOF sewing machine for all of my prototyping. And that's what I use when I uh, first started sewing the backpacks and doing custom work as well. Oh, it's cool. uh, it's a sewing machine, it sits in its own table. Uh, it has like a half horsepower motor uh, below the table. And um, yep, it's it'll you know, sew so through. Pretty much anything, you you know, you probably sew through a half-in sheet of plywood with it. It's not like it doesn't have the oomph behind it, but really feeding the fabric layers uh, evenly. You know, say you have two or th- even three different uh, layers of fabric that you're sewing together at once, making sure that they're not bunching or um, one's being sewn um, slightly faster than the other causes some unevenness in your, uh, the flatness of how everything lays out when you're finished. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a it's a unison feed.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting because from like my perspective on never really sewing anything, it's like, I'm always amazed on how, you know, things get layered out so perfectly and, it, you know, the seams look so nice on, you know, product that you get. And it's like, wow, this is like, it's almost like a skill. You know how people like when they're welding, they lay out like a nice line of weld. It's almost the same thing, you know, it's like, it's a very, it is a, a very unique skill to have.
2: Uh, very much so uh and i was mentioned this earlier when i was trying to find uh qualified individuals skilled and imp- skilled employees basically skilled contractors actually uh to sew for me uh, it's trying to find people that have that skill set is more challenging than you would think um i would say that when people talk about all oh, things are all made in vietnam or things are made you know overseas uh typically in asia i think they have a traditionally a more, a bad rap is somebody, as soon as somebody hears it, Oh, it's, it's made in China or it's made in Vietnam. Uh, they think it must be poor quality, but really the skilled labor is much better as a categorical whole. because uh, they've ever since, you know, post-industrial revolution, uh, with the sweatshops, uh, in the far East, they've been sewing things over there. And as being a large manufacturing hub, they do have the skilled labor people learn how to sew over there and, it's a lot easier to find skilled employees there than it is skilled employees here. But with skilled employees domestically, it's a lot easier to control your quality uh, from start to finish in the production.
1: So are your packs then all made like the, from start to finish, all the components, are they all, you know, assembled under one roof or do you have several different contractors that do different parts of your packs in different places in Alaska?
2: Uh, No. uh, So they're all, from start to finish, I provide the materials. Uh, but once the materials are delivered, I get back uh, a backpack that is then gone through with just QC, making sure all the buck, you know, buckles and parts and pieces are sewn in as they should be, not missing anything, not missing stitches, don't have thread ends sticking out, and then uh, it can be shipped out to a customer. And
1: are they assembling? Like, is was this one? Person or one group of people doing that under one roof, or does it like maybe they, you know, so this part of the backpack here, and then to do the next type of whatever, then adding the next component, does it go to another group of people, or is it or you just go to one group and then it comes back to you?
2: Uh, you know, it's uh, one one group or one group or one individual um, per product is really what it boils down to. One one contract or produces the revelation backpacks one contractor produces uh, a certain number of accessories. Another contractor might produce um, our duffel bags, but having it spread out uh, enough that we can have a, a stable manufacturing base uh,
0: is really our goal. Gotcha. And you feel like with your, your manufacturers, do you feel like uh, they're at a point that if you grow uh, this into, you know, a production of like maybe getting them into um, you, not maybe like you're selling them to a bigger name store or uh, you're just your upkeep is getting more and more. Do you feel like you're ever going to have to like try to grow and find a different manufacturer? or Do you feel like you're setting yourself up for the growth period?
2: Oh, uh, well, you know, at least my experience with business and I don't claim to be a, a super experienced business person at all. Uh, But what I've seen is, never say never, Uh, long-term manufacturing in Alaska uh, has a lot of hurdles to overcome. There's a reason why manufacturing in Alaska is very limited. One is skilled employees, another is just the costs. I mean, you have to pay more than you would pay in the lower 48 uh, or overseas. Would I like to see Alaska manufacturing grow? Absolutely. In fact, it's something that I have, I've worked with some other uh, businesses that are in the stone manufacturing uh, realm here in Alaska, trying to come up with ideas. How can we grow this segment of Alaska's economy so that we can keep things local? I know there are businesses that have figured it out, but typically what I've seen in those businesses, they grow to a certain point and then they stop growing. And that is okay for some people. And it's to be determined uh, where Wrangell falls in that, yeah, um, yeah, process. I would say long-term, unless things change in Alaska uh, with ease of manufacturing, it's likely that things would need to, like infrastructure would need to be created Uh, And it could be done. Uh, I don't know at this point whether or not that's where I want to take the company or not. Yeah. Yep. But uh, providing as much benefit as locally as possible is our goal. So that's, you know, benefit to employees, benefit to consumers. Uh, The benefit is that Rango produces, um, you know, is in our products and the people that make it.
1: Awesome. So, you know, there's why do you feel like um Alaska is kind of a, a I feel like kind of a breeding ground of some of these, you know, s- smaller companies that are making specialized products? I mean, you know, co- companies like Wrangle and then I know you do a lot of stuff with like Versa Outfitters. Um, you know, I work at Heather's Choice. That's a small company to start in Alaska. Like, like, like like what do you think? Uh, why, why do you think Alaska's like that?
2: oh uh you know that's a great question i would say that from my observations the type of people that are attracted to alaska are inherently hardy if they stay here long term they're inherently like their mental fortitude is pretty hardy uh, just due to the the darkness i think it really gets to some but i think it gets to a lot of people um I think that once people use mainstream products, particularly in the the outdoor gear realm, because there are a lot of small gear companies in Alaska, uh, and they produce typically products that are a little heavier duty, made a little higher quality materials, et cetera. They just find that when when people move to Alaska, they realize that things that are advertised in the lower 48 just don't perform quite as well as they should here. And they say, "Well, I have this idea, and I'm an independent individual, and I'm okay with taking a little bit more risk. And and working for yourself is risky. If you want to go the safe, easy route, you should go work for the man. Yeah. But if you want to create something great, you want to experience freedom, work for yourself. And I think there's it's kind of that perfect meeting point of all those. Uh, it's like the perfect." Uh, intersection all of those things that spawns these businesses but something that we do see quite often is these businesses are in Alaska they have great ideas and then they grow to a certain point and then they leave the state because there is not the mm, infrastructure to support a scalable business
0: uh, past a you know certain threshold so you you mentioned that uh, Alaska businesses, you know, try to build it hardier and better. Um, what puts Wrangle Gear in that category? What do you feel like separates your packs from the rest? Oh, uh, well,
2: that's a in some ways a kind of a loaded question, I think. But I will try and break it down uh, in a few simple categories. I would say number one in design. I'm back up. Number one in mentality approaching it. Uh, If you build something to last, you're thinking it's going to have a longer lifespan of use. And if that's the case, you want to produce something that you're going to want for a longer period of time. You're not going to grow tired of a specific backpack or say, well, my experience or what the, the outdoor activities that I participated in 10 years ago were so much smaller in scale than what I participate in now that my gear just can't support me in that. Well, if you buy a Wrangle product, we don't produce any products that are really geared towards the non-dedicated adventurer, non-professional user. So I would I would start by saying that. Uh, As far as the designs go, particularly with the Revelation 7800 backpack, we were approached by some some hardcore sheep hunter, like backpack style sheep hunters, uh, trying to produce a bag that was large enough to carry a camp into the mountains and a sheep out of the mountains, or, you know, caribou or goat, you know, kind of a backpack style uh, mountain hunt. But in the in-between, They didn't want this big bag that was flopping all around, that couldn't compress fully, that didn't operate in a day pack type capacity. Uh, And so we designed a compression system that would take up all the slop uh, in a backpack, allow you to use the side pockets uh, independently compressible from that main uh, bag body compartment. And it increased its versatility. You you can remove the the lid or the brain, some people refer uh, to a pack lid as. And that turns into another small backpack if you want to use it that way. Um, Or you can just lighten the whole thing up by pulling it off, uh, roll the top down and have a roll top bag instead. Uh, All of our materials are the highest quality that we could reasonably source while still keeping the product price point low enough that people would still buy it. I mean, it is a common trend that I see. People really want like this fancy Spectra or Dyneema fabric. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. In fact, it's a great material. It's a little challenging to work with uh, from a manufacturing side of things, but it is very durable. It lasts a long time. It has some great properties, but people just don't want to pay the price for it. <laughs> when push comes to shove, they see how much more expensive it is. And they say, mm, no, thank you. And I think even in the past five years, that price has come down and we're seeing more and more of it. But for right now, we're trying to find a balance between durability and lightweight performance. And really in Alaska, if you're going with ultra light, well, anywhere that you go ultra light, you're going to have to decrease the durability. And we tried to find a balance where it was more a focus on longevity of a product, which made things a little bit heavier, but also made it repairable. All of our like zippers or hardware items like buckles uh, that tend to break after a period of use in the field, uh, not not necessarily abuse, but just things break after you use them for a while, you can replace them on our products. That's so right. making making things repairable once you've purchased them and then getting feedback from actual professionals in the field. I have a lot of connections uh, from when I was uh, working in the guiding industry. A lot of those people have tested our products and have provided feedback, ideas and what they'd like to see incorporated. And we've done our best to create, or to take that input and put it into products in a manner that it's not so custom that it turns a lot of people off from the product, but has broad market acceptance. So filtering those ideas out into something that has broad market acceptance or broader market acceptance. I mean, Red Angle as being a specialty outdoor equipment company is not going to be super broad in the market because there's not a lot of people, uh, there's not a super broad spectrum of people that are in need of specialty outdoor equipment when you look at the the market as a whole. I mean, we're not competing with Dick's Sporting Goods, for example. Uh, it's, It's two completely separate categories in the outdoor realm.
1: Yeah. I feel like the, the longer I spend in the industry, you know, as both, you know, as a guide and then, you know, as uh, you know uh, somebody who recreates in the outdoor industry, I find that the more I get into it, the more specialized my needs become. And there's the more time in the field, the more things that I see that I need or I want. And so personally, I feel like I seek out those companies that are you know making those specific items for the specific task that i want to do and so i, I see where wrangle gear really fits into that where it's like it's made for the backcountry alaska hunter it's not made for you know like you said like like dicks right where you know you can go to dicks and you can buy you know this day pack or a, a cheap overnight bag where you know, somebody in the lower 48 can walk two miles across flat ground and you know, throw up their Walmart tent and stay stay in that. What's I mean, nothing wrong with that, but that that is not gonna do anything good for you in Alaska. And so I can definitely see where you know Wrangle is that specified gear company. Um, you know, that that people are gonna look out for. Like when once they know that they have that need to take it to the next level, I can definitely see where Wrangle is that.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a big game changer too. I like that. Because I can't tell you how many times like something so simplistic breaks on a backpack, but you uh you can't get it fixed. So you're like, well, this backpack. I mean, I can wear it, but it's not going to be comfortable because you know now this buckle is broken and they won't send me this or that that's going to fit this. So it's cool that when something does break, that you have that option that hey, I may need this fixed, and it's it's not going to be the end of the backpack. It's going to be. You know your gear is going to get worn in compared to wear out. So,
2: oh, absolutely. Uh, and something that takes people by surprise, I think, when they first uh, pick up one of our products, particularly like our backpack bag, uh, they they feel it and they think something's wrong with it. Like for example, they try and draw the draw cord down and cinch it down, and it's kind of stiff. There's actually a break-in period just like if you bought a high-end high-quality pair of leather boots it takes a little while to break them into where they function optimally and that's the case with our gear uh due to the materials that we use it just has some break-in period people at first think something's wrong with it but we've got a bit more proactive about telling them hey you know like it's gonna be a little stiff it's gonna take a little bit of time to break in and it's going to function optimally after uh, a few uses or you know a few few weeks in the field.
0: Yeah.
1: Cool. Yeah. So tell us the process of you know like how you acquire materials. Um, what does that what, what does that look like?
2: Well, uh, as far as acquiring materials, I, I would say the first step of acquiring materials is figuring out what materials to acquire, and that goes. To the process of selecting samples, the first thing you do is order fabric swatches. Um, well, even even before that, you look at you know, do I think this fabric or this material or this webbing or this buckle is going to perform at the level that I need it to? And once you think it fits somewhere in the category of yes, this will probably provide the durability, the weight uh, requirements, as well as the uh, minimum order quantities. I mean, we're not at the point right now where we can order 10,000 buckles at a time. We just don't have the volume required for that. And that does cut you out of some manufacturing. You're not gonna have like a custom buckle uh, made if you only order, you know, a thousand buckles at a time. Uh, So looking at what's already available in the market and then figuring out based on pictures, talking to a product rep, will this product you know, these these specifications align with what we're looking for and then obtaining samples. And once you get kind of a hand feel, particularly for fabrics or webbing, um, ordering a you know, five yard sample and then prototyping with it. And if it works out well for the prototyping and you like how it turned out, then testing it. And once you have determined what material you're going to use, then you go ahead and order it pull out your, your line of credit and you, uh, get ready to spend quite a bit of money because you're, you're not ordering, you know, three yards of Joanne fabrics, you're ordering, you know, entire rural quantities. And then you're having it shipped from, you know, any, any location in the country, there's a lot of fabric mills, uh, over on the East coast, a lot of, uh, materials that are produced over there. Uh, and then also like Tennessee, uh, Missouri area as well. once you order you know three or four rolls then you get it all shipped to you and that's where the fun starts you know cutting things out cutting patterns out um we work with an automated custom cutting system and that's where that digitized pattern i was telling you about uh really speeds things up just man hour wise
0: labor wise gotcha what's like the um it's like the customization in fabrics? Like when you order a fabric, do you feel like you can get, do you try to find a fabric that you may be able to get a couple different colors in? Or do you just mainly just like, are you are you gearing up to buy a fabric that's just going to be uh, more you know durable per se?
2: Well, I think that's really going to depend on what your end goal is for a specific product um, use. For Wrangle, we wanted something that had some water water resistant or waterproof characteristics, Um, hopefully both. There's a difference between like hydrophobic properties of like a a DWR coating, uh, as well as like an actual impermeable membrane or coating on the fabric to keep water from soaking in. Those two characteristics look differently in the performance. If the actual fibers don't soak up as much water, you're not looking as... At as much entrained water um, weight in a backpack after being out in the field for a long period of time. And that was something that we wanted. It was an issue that was brought to our attention by people that had come to us looking for us to produce gear for them. So we wanted to find a material that would meet that requirement. Having something that's waterproof, um, that at least in the fabric, there's a lot of fabrics and a lot of companies out there that advertise things as waterproof, but they're really not, the, the fabric itself might be waterproof, but none of the seams are sealed. And I think that's something we're, we try and underpromise and over-deliver as a, just a philosophy um, towards our products. Yes, we do produce things out of waterproof fabric. We do use water-resistant zippers, the same zippers you'd find on, say, uh, a rain jacket, the AnkaGuard YKK zippers. But we don't advertise, like, our backpacks as waterproof. They're probably more waterproof than, or more, I'm going to say more water-resistant than the majority of backpacks on the market with a rain cover, um, without a rain cover. But we don't advertise them as waterproof. Um, They perform great. People use them in the field without rain covers all the time and say, oh, this is the best backpack ever. But... Yeah, it just kind of boils down to individual use. We don't want something that's so specialized that it alienates a certain customer base. Yeah.
0: And have you found a way to like make the seams not, you know, water resistant? Like, have you, have you gone into that or do you just, you're just like kind of working with the same um, seams as like everyone else?
2: Oh, you know, there's, there's different things you can do uh, to make a seam more water resistant. Um, one of the things is you can add uh referred to like a basting tape or salesmaker's tape. It's a dual-sided tape. You can run on the inside of your seams between your two fabric layers. And it it seals up the seam or the, the holes a bit better. Uh red we use has a bit heavier of a, a bonded wax coating on it. And so as the needle uh pokes a hole into the fabric the hook catches the bobbin thread and then, you know, pulls it, um, back into the fabric. There's a little bit of wax that's left behind that plugs that hole up a bit more. Yeah. Uh, we use a premium thread for that reason because of that heavier wax coating. It helps increase the waterproofness or I should say water resistance uh, of the product or of the sewn seams. Yeah. Uh, if an individual wanted to, um, you know, they can always try and uh, cover up some of the exposed stitching using like a urethane sealant. Uh, we have experience with like AquaSeal, it bonds really, really well with the fabric we use, uh, but for the most part, that's not something that we do in house. Uh, if an end user wants to customize their bag that way, they're welcome to. We can point them in the right direction as far as finding product that is going to work well uh, with ours, but Again, we do not want to make something so specialized that it costs so much that we weren't able to sell it. It's that happy medium. I mean, we can make the best gear in the world and nobody can afford it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if we wanted to, we go with plasma coated fabrics. There's some really cool things out there, but the price point is way too high. Uh, instead, you know, like our durable water repellent um, coating on the outside of the fabrics that we use, it's what's referred to as a C6 uh, DWR. Uh, there used to be C12. That's uh, like a carbon 12 molecule um, chain. It was a bit more durable than the C6, but they're finding that the half life it was just not breaking down, and we were finding it in people's blood and water systems and whatnot. You wash, you know, gear and whatnot, and washing machines. So uh, there was industry wide, um, you know, regulations that changed that to uh, mandatory C6 uh, DWR. Now the industry is starting to police themselves a bit more. Uh, and they're transferring to like a C zero DWR and the C zero DWR is a little more of a wax base, but when we were doing testing, we found that it just didn't hold up as well, uh, like for the end user. So you'd have a bag that yes, it might technically have a waterproof membrane, but the outside was soaking up more water. And maybe you used your backpack during a 33 degree day and it was raining and you left it outside of uh, your tent at night it froze and the next morning there's a layer on the outside of frozen fabric that that water had penetrated into because it was a c0 less durable dwr coating gotcha i don't think we got a little off topic there but that, uh, that's a rabbit hole in and of itself uh yeah. so yeah dwr coatings in, but it's fascinating in the industry. Yep. yeah yeah
1: uh, it, it's cool to hear about, <clears throat> you know, I can only, I can only imagine myself with a tuba aqua seal, like in a pack, like putting it, I can't imagine how messy that would be. If, if I were to do something like that to my, my bag personally, I'd be like, Oh man, that'd be, that'd be a mess. Yeah. Uh, another thing we
2: do uh, is we use a binding uh, tape on some of our exposed seams on the inside that is, cons- it's called a low wicking binding tape. So even though it might get wet, it's not going to pull as much moisture through it um, through that wicking property as some other products. Well, there's a difference between like how uh, polyester versus nylon performs in in wet environments. Nylon actually absorbs water uh, into the fiber, uh, into the actual material itself, whereas polyester has a bit more of a hydrophobic property.
1: So, how long did it take you, you know, to acquire um, all these materials and to play around with these different, you know, seam sealers and your zippers and your and you know the 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 uh, material itself? And how long does it take to come up with something like your Revelation Pack? Oh gosh,
2: I want to say that was probably that was three solid years of prototyping.
1: Gotcha, and so that's just playing around with different all these different types of materials trying to figure out what worked best for you then?
2: Uh, yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's five steps forward and then it's six steps back, but then it's 10 steps forward and two steps back. Uh, as far as patterning uh, and improvement of that pattern, improvement of the material, then you find, oh, this material isn't performing long-term as well as we like. So then you go with another material, but then you have to use it for you know six months to a year in order to determine the long-term durability of it. Things like that. It's, it's never uh, a linear uh, process. We'll put it that way. A lot of back and forth, lots of going back to the drawing board, coming up with something a little bit better, figuring out how can we make this product um, easier to produce from just a sewing standpoint, like skill-wise. That was something that I really fought a lot of when I started speaking with manufacturers, the the feedback I was getting was, "This is a phenomenal product. We really love it. We think it's really, really unique, particularly your compression system and how it operates. Uh, we see the value in it, but we don't want to produce it because it's challenging to produce." And I was like, "Well, hmm, where do I go from here?" So then I went back to the drawing board. How do I? How can I? maintain the core principles of what makes our pass-through compression system on our revelation backpack special, but how can I make it easier to manufacture? And that was something that I I didn't see coming uh, in the business side of things. I think a lot of good ideas uh, actually get to that point and they die. And it's not just in the outdoor gear room. I think that is in manufacturing in general. There's a lot of great ideas out there. But scalability is difficult uh, in a lot of those specialized applications. The idea is good. Implementation or how do we make something function that way, but actually make a profit in producing it, it's a graveyard of cost, I think, is the cost of production is a graveyard of a lot of good ideas.
1: Oh, absolutely. Totally get that so tell us um a little bit about you know what makes your your packs different i mean we've talked about the materials and I mean, we can tell you're super passionate about it but, but tell us some of the the specs on your packs that you know kind of sets you apart from different ones in the industry
2: Uh well i guess i'll I'll start with our revelation uh backpack the revelation 7800 uh the revelation mountains I, if you're familiar with alaska the revelation mountains are kind of the tail end of the alaska range uh kind of southwest uh, they're a very very rugged mountain range uh kind of a younger um rock formation actually i think there's some of the younger mountains in alaska i don't think they're the youngest but you look at them and they're not weathered and aged uh, it's a very very gorgeous country but incredibly rugged so the backpacks named after the revelation mountain range and the ruggedness of that product uh I think shines through uh, just with the materials itself. As far as the functionality of it, it is just a bag only. Uh, it's designed to fit onto an external frame backpack. That's kind of up to the end user uh, what they what frame system they want to put on there or put the bag on, I should say. Uh, if, but if the be, if the grommets are 14 uh, inches wide, that's outside outside of the. Uh, aluminum tubing frame, and grommet hole to grommet hole uh, is 29 inches, uh, we can make it fit on the Reganstick, uh custom-spaced grommets in there. Uh, I think uh, the majority of our users end up putting it on like a Frontier Gear of Alaska frame. It's a pretty popular frame up here in Alaska, uh, but it will fit on like a Kelty or I want to say Alps makes uh, some frame packs that are also in those dimensions. Uh, back in the day, I think camp trails made a lot of frames that are those dimensions. And they might have a little bit larger diameter tubes, uh, but in that seven-eighths range uh, tubing, it'll fit on there. We can uh, adjust those grommets. Uh, the grommets are themselves, uh, we went with a, a rolled rim spur washer and grommet system, which instead of just having a hole poked through fabric and hoping that the fabric doesn't have uh, doesn't tear, we use that spur washer which perforates uh, and then those spurs splay out into the other side of the grommet. And as a result increases that holding power and using those roll rim grommets, there's not a sharp surface on the fabric uh, where those grommets are pressed together. So that increases the durability. We also run those grommets through some two inch webbing uh, on our top Uh, grommet, which experiences the most wear and tear. So that tear out uh, of the top grommet is kind of a known thing with backpacks uh, that use the external frame and pins to attach the bags. So we tried to address that uh, by just making it really, really robust up top. Uh, As far as the the special compression system, we call it the pass-through compression system, allows you to compress the main bag uh, body without affecting the ability to get into your side pockets. But we did that without having these big floppy side pockets that get caught on brush as you're walking through it or just they're, they're a little bit awkward is the feedback we were getting uh, with what was already on the market. And we wanted to narrow up the profile of our bag. So most uh, external frame backpacks are pretty wide. So when you are in low land conditions, you do end up getting hung up on the brush quite a bit. So we narrowed up the profile uh, and then added that really robust compression system, added a phenomenal uh, fabric with the really great quality uh, stainless steel washers uh, with the webbing for that top grommet. And just trying to make it as robust as possible without overbuilding to the point that it's so heavy you don't want to take it with you. I know, uh, I, I ran into this, uh, there some people they really wanted to carry like say a shotgun for bear protection when they're out fishing. And then the shotgun turns into a 44 mag that they carry on their chest. Cause the shotgun got too heavy. And then after a while, the 44 mag got too heavy and they're like, mm, I'll take my nine mil and we didn't want to create a piece of equipment that was so, um, robust that people left it at home because it was too heavy. So trying to find that sweet spot of durability and longevity, but also um, light enough weight, you can reasonably use it in a lot of situations. Our lid compression system uh, is also pretty unique on both of our bags, our Arigach backpack, also named for another um, segment of mountains in the Brooks Range, uh, or another mountain range in Alaska. But that uh, lid allows you to the the lid is height adjustable. So a lot of frame packs, they have a fixed lid. It's sewn into the bag material on the front, kind of like right behind your head. And you start getting a really tall load, um, like that backpack gets fuller and fuller and fuller. You can't cinch the collar uh, on the top of the pack all the way down. And then you start banging your head on the um, contents of that top lid pocket. So we made the lid height adjustable and then had a wrap around compression system with a casing that helps pull that, uh, most really tall loads, uh, when your backpack's really, really full away from the back of your head. So your head isn't looking, you know, your eyes aren't looking down like your toes and you can't lift your head up to look at the trail in front of you. So that's kind of the, the special features, uh, of that, uh, revelation backpack, uh, the bag itself, we did incorporate some, uh, accessory features, I think are pretty great we added an internal load sling system. So if you say go into a, a backpack sheep hunt area or backpack go area, uh, you can bone out the meat and then attach a internal load sling that holds the meat right up against your backpack. There's a pretty pretty common uh, industry standard of like a, a little partition halfway down or maybe two thirds of the way down uh, next turn frame backpack bag. We took that one step further and made a sling that holds all the meat up against your bag uh, against the frame right against your back because uh, those those partitions although they work you end up with most of those really heavy dense items such as boned out meat sliding all the way to the bottom uh, and resting right on that shelf we wanted to avoid that um, and just make the backpack a little bit easier to use uh, also keeps that center of mass right between your shoulder blades uh, if at all possible just shoulder blades to you know Mid back. Uh, we do have a water bladder um, hydration uh, holder that you can add in. Uh, our bags are left and right uh, hydration hose compatible, and then we have some accessory pockets that you can add on. So the Revelation with those two folding uh, zippered side pockets, you can add in a three pocket accessory panel. Uh, Velcro's is in there, but it allows you to pull it out real quick. Say you have stuff in there you want in your glassing knob, or maybe you want to have toiletries in there and you pull it out and bring it to your tent at night. So ease of use in that regard, uh, is, is pretty big in how our accessories function. And we do have like, a, a medium and a small accessory pocket that just straps onto the outside of the backpack. Yeah. Gotcha. Can
1: that, yeah. sorry, Keenan. Uh... Can, can your load sling be used in conjunction with the pack? Or does that have to be separate to be able to use that load sling? Uh, so we actually make two
2: different load slings. One is like our external load sling. And it's real popular with Moose Hunters. Uh, it's made of a super robust uh, waterproof fabric. Uh, it's a TPU-coated Cordura. So it's TPU is the type of coating they use in like pack rafts. So it gives you an idea of the type of material. Uh, it's coated on one side, that way, that side going up against the meat, um, you can easily hose off uh, any blood. The internal load sling, though, is a completely separate product. Uh, it's very, very lightweight. It's just a, a piece of fabric with uh, a couple pieces of webbing and some buckles, and it attaches inside of the backpack. You, when it's not in use, it is, is thin, you know, I, I want to say it's a few, Maybe a couple hundredths of an inch thick, <laughs> rests right up against the inside of your backpack. Weighs, you know, maybe an ounce and a half. You'll never know it's there if you don't need it. Uh, but if you shoot something, you have uh, boned out meat, then you can go ahead and uh, expand it and slide the meat right inside there, cinch it down, and it's going to improve your quality of life uh, when you're packing out meat. You don't have that big old, uh, you know, uh, goat ham or uh, sheep ham all the way down uh bumping against the back of your legs and the bottom of your backpack when you're using that sling
1: gotcha okay that makes sense that makes sense so is is the internal of your bag then is it just like one big open space or do you have any internal compartments or you know I, I used to have a backpack that had like a separate spot at the bottom for like a sleeping bag is there anything on the inside or is it just one open bag on? Both of our backpacks,
2: the Arrogate 6000 Backpack and the Revelation 7800 Backpack, that in that main bag body compartment is open. It's whatever you want to stick in there, cram it in there, pack it well. But if you want to add accessories, you're more than welcome to. That's what I was talking about. We have that internal load sling you can add on. If you don't need it, pull it out. It, it detaches pretty easily, you know, and within a minute, it uh, can be pulled out or added. We also have that uh, water bladder pouch. If you wanted to use a water bladder pouch or something else um, for this organization, you absolutely could, but uh, it's specifically designed, has a little hanger hook in it for um, you know, like a platypus or a camelback type hydration system. So it's nice and, and streamlined, bare, simple, but if you want to add on the accessories, you absolutely can. So why would you pay for options in a backpack that you don't want and don't need, people don't want to do that. So we made the accessories, uh, so people customize their backpacks to their specific applications and their specific needs. I think it increases the overall, uh, applicability of that specific gear to a variety of activities. Now it's not just specifically hunting. You know, if you want to use the, the backpack on, uh, you know, Trekking tour, you know, backcountry skis, you know, you could do that if you wanted. You know, strip it all down, make it nice and lightweight. Um, our revelation bag, I want to say, is, uh, three pounds, 10 ounces, and the air bag is uh,
0: two pounds, 14 ounces. Gotcha. What do you, when you're building your packs, what about ergonomics? What do you have for that? What do you think? Um, how do you uh, make it? I know you can't make it fit to everyone's back, but what do you have in mind when you're building a pack um, to make it comfortable for everyone?
2: Well, uh, you're touching on something that actually is a pretty near and dear to my heart. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that have bad backs because they packed out heavy loads uh, when they were young individuals and didn't know any better or just didn't know any better and had bad gear. So we are working on developing our own frame system. Uh, Taking into account basically what you brought up, uh, increasing the number of people that it will fit in an ergonomic fashion uh, that's healthy for their back and uh, actually working with people that are medical professionals uh, and getting their opinions on how things fit and how support is provided to the user. And then trying to take that and customize or make it customizable enough that one backpack frame system can be adjusted to the vast majority of users. Yeah, that makes sense. And still maintaining that that ergonomic integrity of the product. But with just our our bag, um, our pack bags, it's really up to the end user right now uh,
1: what system they want to put it on. Gotcha. So is, is there a system that you, you know, like you design the pack around specifically or is it, I, I know you said like, you know, there are a few other, a few that you can kind of tailor to, but is there one in particular that works best with your bag? Um, I wouldn't say necessarily best, uh, but I
2: think personally, uh, as well as the feedback, uh, resounding feedback I've gotten from guides and outdoor professionals in Alaska is if you want an external backpack frame and you want that system and you're using it in Alaska, you should probably go with a Frontier Gear of Alaska frame. Uh, most, I think, most people use that frame system with our bags.
1: So, what um, have you ever wanted to make your own frames as well, or, or, or if you have, what has kept you from doing that?
2: So that's what I was just talking about uh, just a moment ago. We are in the process of developing our own frame system that maintains, um, it, it increases the ability for an end user to customize it to their specific you know, body shape or their back shape uh, and maintain those ergonomics. Uh, most external frame backpacks that welded aluminum tubing uh, frames, you bend to the frame, the frame does not bend to you. And so there's uh, a lack of customization, and a lack of um, ergonomics for the vast majority of people that use them because it's it's one size fits all and nobody's back is the same. Okay. okay. Yep. So we we are in the process of developing our own frame as we speak as I'm you know talking about this. So yeah, that's uh I guess it was a secret now it's not. Um yeah be be looking out for a Wrangle uh, external backpack frame here uh, in the next year or two. Yeah, we're in the we're in the development and um, testing phase right now, so we want to get this right before we release it.
0: Cool. Um, when you're building your backpacks to fit a frame, is it is it pretty general uh, when you're building that that pack to go onto a frame, or do you feel like you have to like get specific things to make sure it attaches to to the backpacking frame?
2: Oh absolutely you know um I mentioned the dimensions earlier uh like what frame there's a few different frames out there I think a lot of the older um like camp trails frames they used maybe like an inch uh, maybe an inch and an eighth diameter aluminum tubing I don't think it was quite as uh, high quality alloy as like the 6061 like T6 or 6068 I believe is uh, another Higher performance aluminum alloy has a lot more rigidity to it. Uh, I just I don't think that that's what they used. And in order to create a backpack frame that had the durability, you know, that it wasn't going to kink over on you, they had to increase that tubing diameter. Mm-hmm. So we definitely make our bags such that they fit onto that fourteen by twenty nine inch um, hole pattern. And a lot of companies do use that size, um, but beyond that our patterning in order to get it to fit on there that's that is the single most difficult thing to do is you can have an entire backpack it's all sewn up it's ready to go and then you have to stick the holes in and punch through your grommets and add the grommets and if you mess that up it doesn't fit and then you've spent all this time on a product that then doesn't fit the frame that the end user is going to put it on So there's a little bit of a nerve wracking process there at the very end and it's within a 32nd of an inch 16th of an inch type accuracy um punching holes yeah
0: and setting those traumas you almost need like one of every frame so you can be like okay let me test fit this all but that's an expensive endeavor right there
2: yep no it's uh it's a little bit easier to just run off of hard numbers Uh, There is manufacturing variability. You probably wouldn't guess this, but when you start getting, say, three, four frames of the same brand or brand make and model, um, there's manufacturing variability even within those product lines. You typically don't see it as a user because you only own one of each product. When you start getting uh, a shipment in or uh, just a large number of items and taking exact measurements, you see that there's error, yeah. And you know, figuring out how how we can reduce that margin of error in our manufacturing, um, you know, our main manufacturing tolerances are pretty pretty tight, and they have to be because of the material we use. I think I mentioned that earlier with working with material that I ended up settling on um, for the majority of our products. is difficult to work with. There's a reason why not a lot of people work with it. Uh, You have to be very, very, very exact. It doesn't behave like a normal
1: fabric. Gotcha. So what does your warranty look like on your bags, Lowell? Uh, You know,
2: uh, as of yet, we have yet to have any bags come back with a manufacturer's defect. Um, Obviously, there are some people out there that can break cannonballs with anvils and vice versa. And those people, uh, you know, sometimes it doesn't really matter what, what gear they use. They're just going to break it. And sometimes they know that they're that way. And other times they don't know that they're that way. And they just break every piece of gear that they've ever touched. Um, but, you know, buckles, you know, they break. Zippers, they end up wearing out. And we can repair or replace those. Uh, but manufacturer um, defect warranties. Uh, as of yet, knock on wood. Uh, we haven't uh, had to deal with any of those. I'm sure at some point in time, uh, just like any company uh, we deal with that. But when that does arise, uh, our goal is to develop long-term relationships with customers that uh, can trust us and can trust our product. So we want to make that right with our customers. Cool.
1: What about um, repairs? If somebody, you know, Say they're you know up sheep putting and their bag falls off a cliff and rips a giant hole. Can they send that back and get that that worked on? Yeah, uh, we work
2: with a couple different uh, people that can do specific repairs like that. Uh, some of it's in house, uh, some of it's contract um, type work. But if it you know it's customer's fault, uh, you know their their bag does roll off the mountain. Obviously, they're going to be uh, responsible for the repair cost. Uh, but we can absolutely help them get their backpack up and running again. Gotcha. And, and even, you know, beyond, um, you know, our own products, I, I have recommended a few people, uh, you know, go talk to, there's a, a gear repair place, uh, in Anchorage, it does a great job. And then, uh, I've done plenty of repairs
0: on my own. Gotcha. So what's your, you know, we, we've talked a lot about your backpacks, about warranty. Um, we're going to kind of transition back into you. What's your five-year plan you know, where, where can you see Wrangle growing in the next five, 10 years or what would you like to see?
2: (laughs) Well, those are two very different questions. Um, boy, I guess, uh, long-term, uh, when I say long-term, I mean you're talking like 10 years. Um, well, I guess just start off with, we didn't really cover this, but, um, Wrangle is an e commerce based company. And we went an e commerce based route because we wanted to produce products in Alaska. We wanted to produce high quality products in Alaska. And producing high quality products in Alaska costs money, both in materials and labor. And in order to build quality into the product and still keep it at a reasonable cost, we decided we needed to sell direct to consumer. So we have partnered with um, one specific uh, outdoor pro shop uh, down here in the peninsula. That's Wilderness Way here in, uh, in Soldatna. And if you want to go check out our products, uh, put your hands on them, try them on, look at all the pockets on the backpacks, etc. cetera, uh, you should absolutely stop by there. We are in the process of growing that exclusive. Um, retail partner network throughout Alaska. And so I definitely see that as something that's up and coming, uh, probably even by the end of this year. Uh, so that's, that's on the horizon. Uh, we do want to expand our product line uh, slightly. Uh, we don't want to grow too fast to the point where we cannot focus on quality. Uh, we there, there are companies that have gotten to the point where they've started to, to produce the volume instead of the quality and we want to avoid that pitfall uh, in our long-term uh, goal, our long-term plans. So we're gonna expand our product line. We have the um, backpack frame that's coming out. Once we're able to do that, we will fill out our backpack um, bag line with some more specialized products. And those are those are on the horizon. Uh, we already have some, some ideas for what those look like. We have a couple prototypes that are in testing right now. But um, yeah, that's that's proprietary uh, information as as of this point. But we do want to grow um, the offerings, but maintaining that high quality. And I think that's probably going to be on you know, a five term uh, or five year uh, time frame. Awesome. Uh, our our goal though is to to make a comp- to build a company that makes the most badass gear in Alaska. That's that's the long term goal. And how long that takes, we will see. That's going to be dependent on uh, a lot of things, uh, particularly
1: in the next four to six years. Gotcha. So, if somebody's looking, you know, to get your hands on your pack, head to Wilderness Way, and then um, otherwise, um, ordering off your website.
2: Uh, yep, uh, we are about ready to partner with a retail location, Anchorage. Uh, that's We're working out the fine details uh, of that as we speak. So we should have an announcement with all the details probably about the middle of May and people will be able to get their hands uh, on products in Anchorage. Uh, and then we'll continue expanding throughout the state uh, throughout the rest of the year. Uh, if they want to check out products or, or order them online, they can... Um, go to our website, www.wranglegear.com. We have a blog. We have the Goat Notes blog. When we release a product, uh, you can go ahead and check out kind of our uh, blog post review of what that product does, why it's different, what makes it special, and some more candid uh, use type uh, photographs of it. And then you can head over to the product page and check out the product description. Uh, we do have some magazine review uh, articles that are supposed to be coming out here in the next quarter, uh, maybe third quarter of this year. You know, that should give people a little bit more information on our product line, our company, et cetera.
0: Yeah. So um, what is uh, what is Wrangle Gear doing for conservation, or what do you do personally uh, to show your business is also about the product, about the outdoors, but we're also about conservation if you do anything.
2: Well, you know, that's um, a great question. I think it's become a bit of a trend in a lot of, a lot of industries that uh, like an outdoor gear, uh, like 1% for, I think the planet, I think is uh, an organization where you can like round up um, or they donate, you know, 1% of their profits. There's a lot of ways you can lie with statistics in regards to that. Uh, Right now we're focusing on our product being the benefit. We use materials that are um, sourced responsibly. They're made domestically. Uh, Environmental regulations in the United States are substantially tighter than in a lot of other places in the world. And there's a lot less pollution that occurs as a result of manufacturing in the United States than say if the same product was manufactured in a location that has um, less stringent environmental regulations. Uh, so really wrangle is our, our benefit to our customers, um, and to the environment is our product and the ethics that go into producing it.
1: Yeah, love it.
2: Yeah.
1: Gotcha. Well, I kind of wanted to wrap up with this question here. Lowell is, um, I, I, I mean, the first time I ever met you was at uh, the event. It was the um, the draw results party in Palmer. And then, you know, seeing you at the at the wild game meat party. And then, um, you know, I knew you were in the at the sportsman show up in the valley earlier this spring. Uh, kind of tell us about some of these events you've hosted and kind of how you got into that. And then, um, you know, some of the seminars that you're putting on. A good
2: question there. Um, So the events, I guess that's, um, I'm not really even sure what spawned that idea. Uh, Probably like some uh, subconscious or subliminal branding from somewhere. (laughs) I I wouldn't put it past a company for that. Um, But with the, like the draw hunt results party, uh, the Alaska draw hunt results day, uh, I think it's typically like the second or third Friday of February every year. Uh, We wanted to basically have a big get together where people could bond over their uh, shared love of hunting and the outdoors. And we uh, were able to partner with a couple other Alaska businesses Uh, and one uh, large brand. Let's see, we had Versa Outfitters that make fleece outwear. Um, uh, Shout out to them. Uh, Great company, great people uh, Alaska rod co, uh, with Matt. I think Matt actually might've been on the podcast here. Uh, he came out for it, uh, had his products there. And then we partnered with the, uh, Leupold optics, uh, regional manager, and we all got together and we were able to, uh, have the event. It was at bleeding heart brewery out in the valley. We had a massive turnout, way bigger than we thought we were going to. We were shooting for like 20, 30 people. I think 80 showed up uh, and we had only done about a week of uh, advertising for that. So I guess this is a, a big shout out. We've already secured a venue for next year. Uh, it is going to be bigger and better. So mark your calendars. I want to say it's February 16th of 2024. There's going to be a draw hunt results party with Wrangle. Uh, specialty outdoor equipment and some other uh, local Alaska businesses and brands. As far as the seminars go, that's something that w- really started by accident. Uh, I had a good friend of mine that drew a phenomenal tag down on Kodiak a, a number of years ago. It was probably almost a decade ago. Um, and he knew that I'd worked down there and had spent uh, some time working for a, a well-known Alaskan guiding outfitter down there. And he asked me, well, like, how do I tell what size a bear is? And I started trying to describe it just, you know, over like a dinner table. And I thought to myself, mm, I'm doing a really terrible job of this. How about I go ahead and write this down? And I took some pictures um, the following season to try and fill out some of the, the text that I was able to write down. But I, I made like a, a three-page PDF document form of this is how to, you know, field judge a trophy bear before it's dead and on the ground. Uh, it's kind of a well-known fact uh, in the guiding world up here that a lot of resident hunters go out bear hunting. They might draw a phenomenal uh, brown bear tag, but they come back with a seven-foot bear, and that's not good for anybody. It's not good for the bear population. It's not good for the other user groups in that area because you're harvesting young, um, you know, population, uh, specimens of the population. And it's not good for the person that ended up, you know, going on the hunt. Yeah, sure. They had a, a, maybe they enjoyed themselves, maybe they learned something, but they weren't able to harvest an animal that was older, uh, at the end of the genetic life cycle, so to speak, the end of their ability to contribute genetically to the health of the population, uh, which. Typically, a lot of trophy animals are getting to that point in their life and went ahead and expanded you know, that three-page uh, PDF document into an hour-long presentation about how to tell if a bear is likely to be of trophy quality and what that looks like. It's not just size. Uh, I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, Boone and Crockett trophy, you know, brown bear, it's 28-inch skull. I want a ten-foot bear. Doesn't everybody want a ten-foot bear? Everybody wants a ten-foot bear, a hundred-pound halibut, a thirty-inch trout, and a sixty-inch moose. Mm-hmm. Fact of the matter is, you got to be patient uh, and spend a lot of time in the field for any one of those things. Uh, so that's my approach to the outdoors. Is I want to leave things better than I found them. Um, I want to create benefit, and and doing those seminars, I think helps pass along. Uh, the information is going to help other people be successful in attaining their goals and in the process doing the Minimal amount of damage, um, to the environment through just being not sucking, I guess, <laughs> um, paying attention to, you know, your, your practices while you're out hunting, you're not, you know, cutting down massive amounts of trees, you're not starting big giant fires that are, you know, campfires turn in forest fires, things of that nature. And then just, you know, simple things like, let's not shoot, you know, tiny bears, let's definitely not shoot cubs. Let's try and avoid shooting sows. Is it legal? Yes. You could shoot a, you know, a nine foot sow. Is it common that they get that big? No, but they can, but if we can avoid, uh, shooting a sow and instead harvest, you know, mature boars, uh, it's going to be much better for the population overall. So those classes are, are designed to just help, um, educate people. And as a result, hopefully increase the quality of uh the harvest opportunities long term for people to come hunting in Alaska cool
1: gotcha.
2: I think there was one other part to that question though that you asked I think there was three parts to so I only answered two
1: um no I I, I think you covered it
2: um, I covered it okay
1: yeah, I think uh,
0: you're good yeah
1: yeah I appreciate it
0: so we talked a lot about your accessories. We talked a lot about your backpack. What, what other stuff does Wrangle Gear have to offer? And uh, anything else that you want to share about that?
2: Uh, great question there. Uh, absolutely. We do have, uh, we talked about our Revelation 1700 backpack, which I will say is kind of our flagship product. We've stuck the most amount of resources and time into producing and perfecting that. And it was probably the most complicated product. It was one of the first products that went from start to finish. Um, And there was a a lot of things that along the way we changed. uh, But the end result was something uh, that was worthwhile. It's a phenomenal quality, provides some phenomenal features. But some of our simpler products, uh, simplicity means that the user uh, can interface with the product easier. It also means there's less things to break. And we found that there's a lot of um, bags on the market, particularly like the duffel bag realm, that if you wanted to go with something that was quality materials or quality workmanship, you got into a very complex duffel. Our approach was let's back up, let's make a simple duffel that is usable in a wide variety of applications. And let's make it a super high quality material so it lasts a really 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 long time in a manner that it performs in a manner that the end user is going to be really satisfied with so that's our captain's duffel uh, line it's made out of a a 420 denier outer fabric same as our pack fabrics uh, laminate uh, with the waterproof membrane the white interior and it has the uh, ripstop grid so with a duffel bag in particular it's also noticeable in the backpacks you have uh, if you have a dark fabric, you block out all the ambient light, but with the lighter gray fabric and that white backing, it allows you to see the contents of your bag. That uh, white liner really glows when the ambient light hits it. So instead of having this big black hole of a duffel bag, you have a duffel bag where you can find stuff. And we made it simple with just wraparound uh, handles. We used a high quality uh, type 6, 6 nylon. It's just a type 6 nylon. This is a little more, a little higher strength, a uh, little better quality. We added in a, a simple compression system that you can pull on or off depending on your specific application and some internal organizer pockets. Again, you can add them or remove them depending on your specific needs. And we wanted it to be Able to be used in a wide variety of situations. Some people use them for gym bags. Other people are using them for um, packing all of their like survival items in a Super Cub. I just delivered, uh, and I want to say it was like three or four of them uh, to an air charter here. Uh, they were going to use them for packing their Super Cub. Uh, hunters come to them with their big old external frame backpack, all kitted out, or like uh, you know, like a Stone Glacier backpack. You know, some other really great uh, backpacks that are phenomenal in the backcountry. Uh, but they're all packed out with their rifle strapped to the side, and they want to hop in a Super Cub for a flyout hunt. And the first thing they got to do is unpack that backpack so they can go ahead and fit it inside the Super Cub because a packed backpack doesn't really fit in a small aircraft like that. Um, so using those uh, duffel bags help organize things um, in transportation. Is uh, another niche that I didn't necessarily foresee. a uh, grab onto that product, but they see the. The benefit of having that highly water resistant construction um, and just the size it's a 40 liter that's the first size we released we have a 60 liter uh, probably a 65 liter an 85 liter and a 105 uh, in the works as well so we're going to fill out the rest of that product line we made the um, the corners a multi-radius um, curve and that allowed for a little bit more functional capacity A lot of times you have uh, maybe a a backpack or a bag, they say, oh, you know, this is a a 40 liter bag, but you have 10 liters of the main compartment. Or maybe it's like, maybe it's 15 liters of the main compartment and all the rest of it is these tiny little pockets that don't necessarily fit larger items. Uh, We went with the very open uh, concept of the duffel and then the multi-radius corners allows it. Again, it's more of a functional, usable space. So when it's 40 liters, we mean you can use like 39.5 liters of that to fit your gear. Uh, Very little uh, wasted space in there. And then I brought up the external uh, meat sling as well. That is real popular with strapping down moose quarters. Uh, If you're packing out something uh, on an external frame backpack, it's uh, made with buckles and uh, some I think they're called triglides. Uh, you can go ahead and um, strap it on and to your backpack. You lay the moose quarter down over the frame and lift uh, and fold that uh, sling up and over the top, and then buckle it down uh, in place. It replaces having to use paracord. If you use paracord, then you're always having to deal with loosening paracord, and then at the end of your you know pack out, the paracord sunk into the meat in the quarter so far that you can't untie your knots and they're too tight and you end up cutting it and you wasting all this paracord or gaining or whatever you use. Um, so the speed at which you can attach, uh, securely a moose quarter uh, is very advantageous for the user. Um, so yeah, those are a couple of our other products. Uh, but our Arrogatch 6000 backpack with the full length, um, zipper on the back is really nice for, uh, a little bit smaller, um, capacities, uh, with that 6,000 uh, cubic inch, you still get a lot of functional or usable room. There's not uh, a bunch of pockets, uh, that are taking up all that, um, advertised space. Uh, there's not really a industry standard for measuring capacity. There's a few different ways that you can go about doing so. Um, but we always try to under promise and over deliver uh, with all of our products and and capacity and fun- particularly functional capacity, usable capacity in our products is
1: um, something that we really focus in on. Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for touching on those other products too. And then the whole time you've been, you know, as you've been talking about your backpack and, you know about the duffel and everything i've been i've been on your website and like I'm you're talking about these things and I'm like oh, okay i see this i see this i think it, it, it's cool to you know have you to break it down for us right on here and, and i encourage you know people that are listening that are interested in picking up a pack or just checking it out to go to the website and kind of look at the photos of the bag as lowell is, uh talking about it so it's, it's really helpful to understand the whole the whole system so that's been really cool
2: Yeah. And, and maybe, um, I don't know when this is going to be published, but, or when this uh, podcast is going to be, um, uh, sent out there and made live for everybody, but perhaps by the time this gets out there, we will have our newest product. It's a a chest pouch for, uh, hunters, uh, bush pilots, and
1: fly fishermen, uh, on the website as well. So you should check that out. Cool. Cool. Well, we appreciate you sharing the a lot of this uh, new information with us, and we're we're happy to be able to put that out there for people to hear, learn about. Yeah,
2: we're we're at an exciting time uh, of growth with the company. Looks great. You you caught us at a good time. <laughs> awesome.
1: Awesome. Well, we uh, we appreciate you know the time that you've taken out with us today to to talk about yourself and talk about Wrangle. Um, we do like to finish out every episode, uh, with some rapid fire questions, just to get to know a little bit more about you. We'll shoot them off at you and, um, you can just give us the best answer you got for
0: them. Shoot. Um, All right. Go for it. Keep, uh, what's your favorite thing to hunt?
1: Bears. It's favorite thing to hunt? I'll go for it go for it
2: uh, bears are just super cool critters they, they they start you know walking across the high country you know particularly spring versus fall um think about them they're like a an oversized uh barnyard pig with paws instead of hooves and uh, they start making a lot more sense they're really really intelligent and uh i don't know i watching bears through a spot in scope it usually gets a few good chuckles just watching a bear be a bear you know they'll climb up the side of a mountain and then just Roll down a snowpack just for the heck of it, or they'll you know in the springtime and sometimes they'll lay down on a snowpack and they'll their chin will be against the snow and their hind feet will be you know still on the ground, their butts up in the air. They just kind of push themselves across the snow. Just goofy things like that. Um, it's pretty laid back, low key hunting. But I do love uh, horseback hunting as well. Uh, if, I, I can't necessarily necessarily say like one specific critter but horseback hunts, uh, add an entirely new dimension
1: to hunting
2: and I absolutely love it.
0: Awesome. awesome. Uh,
1: what's your favorite thing to fish for?
2: Things that I can catch.
0: <laughs> that is important. What's a dream destination to hunt?
2: Another horseback sheep hunt at a location that has sheep.
1: Nice. <laughs> Love it. Um, what's your favorite uh, meal or snack and then your favorite drink when you're when you're out on a hunt or out in the mountains? You know,
2: I really like um have kind of like a stick of summer sausage. Uh, out on hunts I make my own uh, moose summer sausage you know smoke it go out and uh, cut down little bird sa- uh, saplings and uh, chip all my own uh, smoker chips out of it and then uh, make it that's just that's killer to have on a hunt uh, as far as water or as far as something to drink i really kind of a water guy when I'm out in the field you know good old water
0: Sure. What, what kind of uh music or podcasts are you listening to when you're headed out to the water woods?
2: I don't listen, yeah. If I'm headed out somewhere, uh, I probably left the phone like, phone's off, <laughs> you're not getting a hold of me. That's that's me time, yep. Yeah. Uh, I know some folks that you're know, like, oh, yeah, you know, I have my, my movies or my TV show, and I got my little uh solar panel and whatnot, uh, for watching their their movies or listen to their audiobooks and whatnot while they're out in camp. But, uh, I prefer to just bring a book. Something I learned early on was, uh, if you're going to be stuck in camp and usually you have a few, a few weather days, uh, if you're on a, a long hunt, you should bring a book that you want to read and a book you should read. Nice. So the first, uh, like weather day, you read the book you want to read. And then by like the third weather day, you start reading the book you should read.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. There's definitely been times where I've packed a book and it's like, I really, I'm just bringing this in case I have the downtime. It's like, I really don't want to read it. And I haven't been out there long enough where it's like, I have to read this book because I'm still stuck here.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it depends on the hunt. You know, a backpacking hunt, you're not going to be bringing you know, a big giant uh, a brick of a book. I'm I'm most of the way through uh, a really good book right now. It's a George Marshall, Defender of the Republic, and uh, just a, a phenomenal history book. And learning from that, but I want to say the thing weighs probably three pounds. So there's no way that I'm going to pack that on a on a hunt.
1: No um what's the one Uh so you're headed out the door for a hunt what's what's one thing you can't forget or that'll just completely ruin the hunt if you you don't get to the trailhead and you don't have it toilet paper oh yeah very important very important
0: um what's something you're superstitious about when you're hunting other people
2: Why? i don't know um i would say that uh when i've run into people well, typically i hunt in locations that are, are pretty difficult to access so if i see somebody else there i maybe i'm not like superstitious superstitious uh like you're referring to where i'm like i'm just cautious I'm like hmm are they scaring game out of the country for the most part you get you know get back to the hills people are pretty great um but i guess maybe not superstitious but oh, cautious leery yeah Yeah, i'm not a super superstitious individual maybe when i go out on the water though that's one thing that eh, i don't know if it's superstition or just there's so many variables it's very difficult to know why the things happen that do
1: Oh, no, for sure i'm I, i'm very superstitious when it comes to fishing so i totally get what you mean uh, who is the most unique person that you've ever hunted with? Hmm.
2: I'm gonna have to say it was a client that uh, grew up in South Africa. His father was a, I believe a game color for one of the game preserves down there and talk about a killer. I mean, he he was a hunter. He was a, he was a conservationist hunter, but boy, he had a kill switch. He was a blast to hunt with. I'm uh, hearing about you know, Colin like cape buffalo, you know, down there. He's like, oh yeah, I think I've shot maybe like 900 cape buffalo and maybe like 80 lions. I'm like, holy cow! Uh, and he's talking about uh, reloading. I guess there was that, an ammo embargo um, down there, and they started reloading all their own rounds, and they didn't have the proper equipment to reload with any accuracy. They would he, he called his his father Mr. Reloader, just like that. He said, yeah, we found like some part of pistol powder you the only thing we could find. So we take our 375 cases and we uh fill them up and then scrape the top off with the card, like a playing card, and then jam a bullet in the top and then press it down until it's the right length. And he said we'd shoot those out of Mausers and he said sometimes you have to stand on the rifle and use both hands on the bolt to get it open after shooting. So yeah, I would say he definitely ranks up there with one of the more interesting individuals I've hunted with.
0: That's awesome. That is cool. Um, What's one word to describe yourself?
2: Enigmatic.
0: We
1: haven't got that one. That's a good one. It's a good one. All right. We want to wrap it up with Uh, an awesome outdoor story. You know, it could be funny, could be scary, could be a good story or a bad story. Just some kind of outdoor story that sticks out in your mind. Oh gosh. Well, the first one that comes
2: to mind, and I do not have time unless you have another hour for the podcast. (laughs) I don't have time to tell the full story, but I will uh, give you a brief synopsis. Perhaps uh, we'll have to come on uh, and do another episode with a, absolutely epic outdoor story uh what makes it epic is everything that went wrong went wrong and there was a tiny bit of success at the end but when a 70 something year old Alaskan comes to you when you're like 18 years old and says you know what I've had nine great Alaskan adventures and I figure there's only enough time in a man's life for 10 great Alaskan adventures they're just there just isn't enough time to have more than that. And I really need help on my 10th Alaskan adventure. Would you come help me? You know, you're in for a real treat. And, uh, yeah, lost horses, uh, rifles that fired twice. And you pulled the trigger, um, fake knees on a sheep hunt hurricanes, you know, like the, um, the advertisement, you know, on, uh, TV, like the infomercials about the hurricane, you know, it's like the collapsible cane that, you know, an individual can use. It has a shock cord in it. It snaps together real quick. Mm -hmm. Yep. One of those showed up on a sheep hunt. So I would say that that was uh, my first horseback hunt that I ever went on. And my eyes got about the size of saucers about a quarter mile from the house. When I started hearing about how things were going to go down.
1: Wow can only imagine
2: yeah but there, there was a sheep that was harvested and eventually
1: we got all the horses back
2: but it took almost a month
0: wow
1: dang no we'll definitely have to have you on just uh to, to talk about that story and you know I, i've you talked to me about some of these other stories you shared you know about building you know wooden you know i can't remember what it was what, what was your description like a funeral pyre to you know marsh to to clean a moose on and like out of wood. It's like you got some pretty good stories. We definitely got to get you back on to talk about that.
0: Yeah, I, either that
2: or um oh gosh, the other really good story. Um before I really ever got uh hunting, it was more the fishing. Went fishing for halibut from a kayak when I was like 11 And that was that was a hoop. You got a got a pretty good size halibut up to the boat. I would say it was it was like 75, 80 pounds. You know, after looking at Literally hundreds, probably thousands of halibut now. I'm like, well, you know, looking at the proportions, it was, it was probably like in that 70, 80 pound range. And not having a gaff, not knowing what we were doing, I mean, trying to set a circle hook. You know, my father and I were pretty new to the whole halibut fishing in Alaska from a kayak thing. Neither of us had done that before. And so we went back to camp that night and we used um, like 40 penny spikes for tent stakes instead of like the flimsy aluminum ones or the plastic ones, uh, cause you know, you pound them into a rock and it breaks the rock and then it really stays, uh, instead of breaking, you know, a plastic stake halfway in the ground. So we got out, you know, like a five pounds sledge and a Leatherman set of pliers and forged up a gaff hook and then lashed it to a, a spruce, uh, pole handle and then went back out and never caught another halibut, but it was a good time.
1: <laughs> That's cool. Awesome. Innovation, man. It's that Alaska bush innovation.
2: Yep, it's strategy, you know, making do with what you have when you have limited resources. Yeah, for sure.
1: For sure. Well, we appreciate you hopping on all and and uh you know, talking about yourself, talking about Wrangle, kind of teasing some of the new things Wrangle has coming down the pipe. And yeah, we have to get you back on to talk more stories and I'm sure we could dive down the rabbit hole even more into your packs. I mean, I really appreciate the conversation you had and you know you being gung-ho about breaking down the nitty-gritty little details and stuff. I, I really enjoy nerding out about stuff like that. So appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, it's been a good time. And uh, yeah, if we want to get a lot more
2: detailed about stories or specific, you know, pieces of gear, like the actual process of how, how I arrived at where I arrived uh, with, you know, a design. Yeah. We can definitely go into that, but uh, it's just in order to cover a broad uh, topic uh, and get everything, you know, in a somewhat condensed uh, form. Can't really go into too much detail.
0: Yeah. They cover a lot of great stuff.
2: All right. right,
0: All right. That was another episode of the young Guides podcast. We want to thank Lowell for hopping on and talking about wrangle gear. Um, You can follow wrangle gear on Instagram. Do you guys have Facebook? Uh,
2: Yes, we have uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.
0: Sweet. And what is it that you're at so people can follow you?
2: Yep, we are at Wrangle Gear. That's W-R-A-N-G-E-L-L Gear. Awesome. Yep. And, then you and you get, can check us out uh, across all the platforms on that and YouTube.
0: Cool. And then you can also check out their website, uh, www.ranglegear.com um, and go through and me and Kyle have been looking through on this podcast, a lot of great stuff. And it sounds like a lot of great stuff is headed down the pipeline. So yeah. thanks. Thanks for chatting with us. Lowell. we really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Look forward to, uh, hopefully telling a few more stories next time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Um, well with that one, um, we just wanted to bring up a couple events. Uh, don't forget August 12th uh Cedar River cleanup um, you can uh, reach out to me uh, if you are interested in maybe helping out or sponsoring uh the cleanup I'm always looking for uh, some partners or some someone to uh, help out there um you also if you're you're not on that side of things you can go on to eventbrite and sign up to be a participant in uh the Cedar, Cedar River cleanup um, so looking forward to that. Um, We are approaching the May time period. Um, so we do have some events this month. Um, they might have already passed by the time this one comes out, but uh, make sure to stay tuned for that. Um, May is going to probably be my last month of doing these events. And then we're going to be rolling into the guide season for me and for Kyle. So um but will you will still be producing um some podcasts some content um specific content maybe on our fisheries and stuff so stay tuned look forward to that um Kyle is there anything you wanted to add sorry I was muted um yeah
1: bait shack's got the first ship creek king uh starting in may the king run again probably one of the last places you can target and keep Kings in South Central Alaska. Um, the 13th of May, ship Creek Spring Cleanup. Again, just put on by the bait shack. Come on down and clean up the you know creek that runs right through downtown Anchorage. And then, you know, rolling into June, you have got, got the slamming salmon derby. And then I don't know if I oh I, I uh can tease this Keaton, but um uh, for anybody who wants to take Keaton fishing when he comes up to Alaska at the end of June, hit hit <laughs> us up on the social and uh you, you we're all going to take turns being Keaton's chauffeur for a while. We're going to, uh, he's going to be staying with me and Emily and fishing and we're going to be uh, meeting up with people. And uh, I told Keaton, you know, he's coming around the solstice, so he's not going to sleep at all. We're just going to give him the whole Alaskan experience in a week. So
0: yep. hammer down. Don't look back, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. With
1: that. Um, I think that's all we had for this podcast.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to also throw out uh just thank you for always taking the time and listening to our podcast. Uh Kyle and I both appreciate it and I think all the people that hop on our podcast appreciate it for taking the time and listening about their company, about who they are, um about what they do. So we just really appreciate that. Um if you don't mind taking a few minutes and going to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a review and letting us know how we're doing um good or bad we want to see a review that way we can improve or if we're, you think we're doing great we can keep on rolling on the content train um you can also roll over to Spotify and uh, leave us a review there too so um make sure to check out our website and uh yeah I think we got some things coming down the pipeline as well that Kyle and I are pretty excited about they might get on the back burner once guide season hits but I think come next fall um we will see some some things so really excited about that so yeah
1: with that appreciate you guys listening to another episode young guides podcast and we'll catch you on the next one